Hello, and welcome to episode 88 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad you joined me today. I've gotten a little behind on the podcast. I know this is a bad habit of mine, but all I have to say for myself is summer and bees and gardens and day job and visitors and all that. But today is going to be a radio reader episode with some good information, I believe. The title is The Greatest Generation, Winter Bees by Megan Milbreth. You've heard me read things of Megan's before. I really like her. She is an extension agent up in Michigan, I believe. And one of the things I like about her is her teaching style is just very understandable and clear. That said, she uses techniques in the bee yard and teaches techniques that you would be, you would expect to see perhaps more with commercial beekeepers. And I would imagine that's a lot of who she helps with the extension service. So we don't always manage our bees the same, but I truly, truly respect her incredible knowledge of bees. And she's been a beekeeper since childhood. So she she has definitely learned a lot. And she also has done a lot of experimenting in her particular climate zone with what works and what doesn't work with bees up there in the really cold areas. Now you may, may be wondering, why are we listening to an article on winter bees in the heat of July? Well, it's because the winter bees, as you will hear, they begin being formed really kind of their their parents the ones that will raise the winter bees are just about to be laid by the queen about now in in our area and so what happens the health of those parents is really critical in how the winter bees turn out not to mention that it's also critical in how many winter bees you have which is a is a non-negotiable number below a certain point So I felt like there was some good information really for beekeepers of all levels in here. Now, in the beginning, she does a whole thing on um, kind of why insulating hives in winter is not really the most important part. And I think it's easy to hear this and go, oh, Megan doesn't believe in insulation at all. And I don't know how I feel about that. Because as you know, I actually like some aspects of winter insulation and do it and have seen good results in my particular bee yard, in particular um, in the microclimate I have here. Her her rationale I do agree with, and that is the insulation is by far not the most important part about getting your bees through winter. And people like to focus on it because probably because it's so easily controllable. If you don't have insulation, you can put on insulation. It kind of fools us that way because it, it doesn't the effect that insulation has, in my opinion, is a margin. You know, it's a margin on, on the edges and it can make the difference, particularly in small hives, not small because they're sick, but small because they're young. But I think you'll see what she's saying. But I just want to bring your attention to that. Of uh, I hope you will come away with what I believe she's trying to share. And that is the most important part about winter survival is not the insulation. It's not even the, you know, exact poundage of their stores. It's a lot about their health and their numbers, and those two things are tied together. So before I begin, let me thank American Bee Journal for giving me permission to read some of their articles from the archive. I am a big fan of uh, both the bee magazines, actually, the, the big ones here, Bee Culture and American Bee Journal. Both are online, and with both of them, one of the great advantages of subscribing is not only do you get the magazine, but you also get access to the archives online. And that is a treasure. There's so much good stuff, you know, so many topics you can just search for. And if you have a subscription, 
you can get to read the whole article. If you don't, sometimes you can get to read a, a snippet online. But I believe subscribing to the Bee Magazines is a really good investment in your beekeeping future. All right, so this is Beekeeping Basics, The Greatest Generation, Winter Bees by Megan Milbreth. And this appeared in the January 2020 issue of American Bee Journal. Quote, Whether a colony survives the winter in good condition is determined more by its makeup than by the kind or amount of protection. End quote. And that's Farrar, 1944. Beekeepers love to discuss winter hive protection. Wrapping versus insulation, upper entrances, quilt boxes or moisture boards, bee cozies, straw bales, and which way to turn the hole on the interest reducer. Our hives may be the best protected hives in history. Our colonies, however, have the lowest rate of survival through the winter. In the winter of 2018-19, beekeepers in the U.S. reported losses of 38%, the highest ever reported in the Bee Informed Partnership Survey and much higher than what is considered sustainable. To improve winter survival, we have to pay attention to what Farrar said, turning our conversations away from hive protection and focusing on the makeup of the colony. Whether a colony survives a winter depends very little on what we did to the structure itself and very much on the health and size of the colony, the precious and wonderfully adapted generation of winter bees. Winter bees are a cast, and that's C-A-S-T-E. In insects, the term cast is used to describe a physically distinct group of individuals that is specialized to perform a function in the colony. When we think of honeybee casts, we focus on queens versus workers, female bees with very different bodies and very different functions. However, the worker bees are not a homogenous group, and we also see specialization among workers, summer bees and winter bees. Winter bees have very differently adapted bodies, and very different functions than their summer counterparts. As honeybee colonies expand their range north, expanded their range north, bees were forced to adapt to survive cold temperatures and periods without incoming pollen. They had to figure out how to insulate themselves, create warmth, and sto- store energy to survive long winters. Honeybees adapted by developing a special bee, winter bee, and a special behavior, the winter cluster. Plenty of other small animals are adapted to survive the cold besides honeybees, Canada geese, snowshoe hares, penguins, otters, arctic foxes, snowy owls, etc. All do just fine in prolonged cold temperatures. The reason all these animals do fine in cold temperatures is not because someone builds them a hive and vents it just perfect and tilts it just right. Cold adapted animals survive because they keep their bodies insulated and they store a layer of food. Honeybees are the same. They use the cluster to insulate themselves and winter bees store a layer of food. As long as a colony is healthy, it can survive very cold temperatures. In fact, it was shown that a cluster of bee could survive minus 112 degrees Fahrenheit or 80 below Celsius for 12 hours. How do bees survive extreme cold if not in insulated hives? By acting like penguins. Emperor penguins in Antarctica don't try to heat the entire frozen continent. They heat themselves by forming a tight cluster, with the outer individuals forming an insulating layer for the penguins on the inside. Honeybees act similarly. Bees do not heat a hive. They heat themselves in a cluster. It would be super inefficient for penguins to heat an iceberg or for bees to heat a hive. Instead, the bees and penguins act like a unified superorganism, creating a warm, insulating layer around their whole body. 
The insulating layer is formed when the bees on the outer edge pack tightly together with their heads toward the center. When the bees are tightly packed, their branched hairs can interlace, trapping air and basically acting like a warm coat of fur. Even more amazingly, bees can prevent heat loss through their exposed abdomens by controlling their body heat using an internal countercurrent heat exchange system. This system works by transfer transferring the heat in the hemolyph leaving the thorax to the hemolyph entering the thorax. As hemolyph, or, or bee blood for beginners, is pumped from the abdomen to the thorax, it has to pass through the narrow, constricted petiole or waist of the bee, where the aorta makes a series of hairpin turns. As the cool fluid from the abdomen winds through the twists and turns, it is warming from the heated hemolyph returning from the thorax. The heat transfer to the incoming fluid and stay the heat transfers to the incoming fluid and stays in the thorax, so the bees lose very little heat through their exposed abdomens when in cluster. Because of the interwoven branched hair, tightly packed bodies, and cool abdomens, the efficient outer layer of the cluster is an excellent insulator. In fact, it approaches the insulation factors of goose down or fur. We can now picture our winter colony as an animal with a warm insulating layer designed to withstand cold temperatures. So they don't get too cold, the bees in the insulating layer rotate into the warm core of the cluster. If the body temperature of an individual bee falls below 42 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 5.5 Celsius, the bees will enter a chill coma where it can't move. Below 29 degrees Fahrenheit, or 2 below Celsius, the body tissue of the bee will freeze, and it will die from cold in less than an hour. The temperature at the outer edge of the cluster is usually about 46 degrees Fahrenheit or 8 degrees centigrade, so the bees in the outer layer are kept right above the chill coma temperature. This means that it is important to keep bees in the insulating layer from getting cold too quickly. If the cluster is exposed to wind, the bees on the outside of the cluster can cool rapidly, fall into a coma, drop from the cluster, and freeze to death at the bottom of the hive. This was shown in the 1970s by researchers at the USDA University of Wisconsin College of Agriculture. They performed an experiment where they overwintered four regular hives and four hives with walls made of screen. The temperature in the clusters were similar in both styles of hive even when they were brood rearing and even during the coldest temperatures in January. The screen colonies only died after a storm with high winds. Presumably, the winds caused the outside bees to cool so quickly they entered a chill coma and dropped from the cluster, rapidly shrinking the cluster and exposing the next layer of bees. When the screened hives were in a sheltered location away from piercing winds, the colonies could survive. Go ahead and open the lid to peek at a colony and check food stores in the winter. Just don't do it in a blizzard when you could quickly cool the outer layer of bees. Since the bees don't let much heat out of the cluster, you won't be letting much heat out of the hive. Clustering behavior occurs without a centralized controller coordinating behavior and in the absence of communication. The winter cluster emerges from their collective behavior of thousands of bees that only know their immediate local conditions. They enter the cluster formation whenever the temperature dips cool enough, usually about 60 degrees or 15 degrees centigrade. As temperatures drop further, the cluster tightens to hold in more heat. It can shrink in size five-fold until about 
15 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 below Celsius, at which point the cluster is the tightest. If temperatures drop even colder, the bees on the inside of the cluster shiver by flexing the large flight muscles in their thorax, creating heat. When temperatures are just below 50 degrees or about 10 degrees Celsius, the cluster is most efficient because it can maintain warmth without expending too much energy. Even though bees are well adapted to cold, it is stressful. When we think about winter stress, we think about metabolic expenditure, how much energy the bees need to use to survive. A larger cluster can operate much more efficiently than a smaller cluster as the smaller proportion of bees will have to be engaged in insulating or shivering tasks. Furthermore, the bees in a large cluster lose proportionally less heat. A larger cluster will have a smaller surface area to mass ratio than a smaller cluster. Think of the surface area to volume ratios of spheres of different radii. If the colony gets too small, it is really difficult for the bees to create enough heat and maintain the structure of the winter cluster. A large cluster of bees has a better chance of survival. This is why it is so often recommended to combine smaller colonies in the fall. Once the colony starts to raise brood in the spring, the energy needs and stress on the bees increase dramatically. When the cluster's not raising brood, it can keep the core temperature of the colony fairly low because they just have to keep the adult bees from freezing. Once the bees start to raise brood, the core temperature has to be kept much warmer, 86 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 30 to 35 degrees Celsius. This means that the bees are working much harder to keep the cluster warm and they're using more honey and releasing much more moist air in respiration. Not only does the brood need to be warm, but they also need to be fed. Summer bees perform the high energy task of creating royal jelly from their hypopharyngeal glands when they are young and have lots of energy. Winter bees, however, are put on nursing duty near the end of their lives. Spring and summer bees live a mere 25 to 40 days, while winter bees can live 100 to 200 days. Near the end of their lives, winter bees have to create a high-fat and high-protein diet for the brood from their own bodies. The only way that winter bees can live through a harsh winter and have the reserves to create royal jelly in the spring is because they are physically different from summer bees. In order to have the ability to secrete brood food in the absence of fresh pollen, bees had to adapt to store energy in their bodies. The main difference between a summer bee and a winter bee is that winter bees have enlarged fat bodies in their abdomens. These fat bodies break down fats, proteins, and carbohydrates, and they produce vitellogenin, which is linked to honeybee immunity and longevity. When we think about our bees having enough energy for winter, we usually just focus on honey stores. Most of the energy needed for winter survival and spring growth, however, is inside the bees. Winter survival depends on having a large amount of healthy winter bees. Many beekeepers feel confident when they have a huge booming colony in the late summer. They see all the bees. They can't imagine that they won't make it through the winter. Don't count your winter bees before they hatch. A huge colony in late summer does not mean you will have a large amount of winter bees. The bees you see in the hive in late summer are generally all summer bees. They are supposed to die before winter sets in. The bees that will be alive in December will be produced from eggs laid after early August. So I'm going to read that again. The bees that will be alive in December will be produced from eggs laid after early August. 
Since only a small proportion of bees are involved in raising young, the size of the colony in the fall isn't directly proportional to the number of winter bees that you will have. A small, not tiny, colony can produce enough winter bees to make an efficient winter cluster, while a huge, booming colony may not have any. The number of winter bees raised by a colony is determined by the health of the hive in late summer. The develop, let me read that again because that's really important. The number of winter bees raised by a colony is determined by the health of the hive in late summer. The development of winter bees is triggered by a lack of incoming pollen and other environmental signals in the late summer, early fall. In the best scenario, the entire generation of eggs late at this time will be raised to healthy adults, and the colony will have enough bees for an efficient winter cluster. Unfortunately, in many hives across the U.S., by the time the winter bees are going to be raised, parasite and disease levels are so high in the hive that only a few winter bees reach adulthood, and those that survive to adulthood often have viruses or depleted fat stores that prevent them from surviving the stress of winter. By the time the winter sets in, the summer bees will die off naturally, and the few healthy winter bees that remain won't be able to maintain the structure of the winter cluster. The reason we have such a high winter loss is not because we aren't good at wrapping our hives or propping the lid at just the right angle. It is because we do not put enough attention into making sure that we have enough healthy winter bees. We know that the varroa mite population peaks right when the winter bees are getting formed. They physically damage the developing pupa so many don't survive to adulthood. They transmit a host of viruses that kill off the adult bees so there aren't enough to cluster. Finally, they feed on the fat bodies, the same precious energy stores that our bees need to survive winter. It is no surprise that we lose so many colonies to this pest. Our whole winter survival is dependent on having a large healthy generation of winter bees and varroa populations peak right when this generation is formed. You can put all the care in the world into your bees over the summer, but if you don't protect your winter bees from Varroa, your colony will have no chance of survival. In a pre-Varroa version of the book, The Hive and the Honeybee, 1975, Fergula, I don't know if I'm saying that right, it's F-U-R-G-U-L-A, states that most of the problems associated with winter mortality slash weak colonies can be avoided if beekeepers satisfy these four fundamental principles in beekeeping management. 1. Have a young queen of superior genetic stock. 2. Properly protected from extreme climactic conditions and established in a well-constructed hive. 3. An adequate supply of honey and pollen. 4. Maintained in a disease-free condition. These should be fulfilled throughout the year, but particularly in late summer. Okay, I'm going to read those again, all right, because they really are important. 1. Have a young queen of superior genetic stock. 2. Properly protected from extreme climactic conditions and established in a well-constructed hive. 3. An adequate supply of honey and pollen. 4. Maintained in a disease-free condition. These should be fulfilled throughout the year, but particularly in late summer. These principles have not changed. If we have a healthy colony that has enough food and is sufficiently sheltered, it has the adaptations to survive long cold winters. Yes, it is important to protect bees from the prolonged extreme cold of the Canadian prairies, and yes, it is important to ensure the moisture from the respiring bees does not condense and drip onto the cluster. 
In some parts of North America, you may have to take the extra step to make sure that your winter bees don't experience too much stress from the environment. However, if you are experiencing high winter losses, more than 30%, it is time to put more energy into the makeup of the hive than into its protection. It may make you feel better emotionally to insulate and add quilt boxes and vent and wrap, but if you really want to improve your bee's survival, make sure you are you are also out there all summer preventing parasites from taking over your hives so that you can raise a strong, healthy generation of winter bees. So that was the article, The Greatest Generation Winter Bees by Megan Milbreth, and it appeared in the January 2020 edition of American Bee Journal, and it is read with permission of American Bee Journal. So I want to just talk about a few things. I think you could hear what I was saying about the point of the article is not about to disinsulation. You know, insulation has its place, like what she says toward the end of the article about definitely protect them from the winter stresses. And as I've mentioned before here, for us in the high Appalachians, the winter stress is not so much long, cold winters like the Canadians have to deal with, but more the up and down, up and down. You know, one day it's flying weather, the next day it's five below, and that up and down is its own set of stresses. But what she's saying is all that's not going to matter if you have sick bees inside your perfect, lovely hive. I've learned this over and over. There's several things in here that she says that I've learned in many different ways about that whole um, below a certain size, the cluster is just doomed. And that was something that I saw even in the shed, now the the free-flying bee shed, where I was trying to overwinter some very, very small nukes. And I did not hit the size right, and the winter was erratic last year. And so that exact thing, that exact thing that she described, in hindsight, I see that that's exactly what happened. Um, After the first really bitter cold spell, there was a bunch of dead bees at the bottom of the nukes. And essentially that was the outer layer. And that took off enough bees that over time they didn't have a chance because, you know, every cold snap they would lose another layer and they just got down to nothing. Despite being young colonies with young queens and low to no mites that you can't get around the the winter. But the main thing that she says here about how those late summer bees need to be healthy in order to have the winter bees, that is so true. And that's what I've talked to you before about if you have a dearth, a lack of nectar in your area. And let me say a dearth can be a dry spell, it can be the failure of a some type of crop or bloom that you rely on, or it can be endless rain. <laughs> and that's something that here in Western North Carolina, now we're having extremely dry year this year relative to quote unquote normal. Many times we can have day after day after day of drizzle and rain and mist and chill. And that that's like a dearth for the bees. That's as good as a drought for the bees because they're, they're trapped inside the hive and there's not food coming in. They're still using food. So toward the end of summer, if you've had a dearth, you your bees can actually be in a starving condition. And even if they have, and this is the part that I only really got recently in the past few years, the hive can be heavy. It can be heavy. Maybe you didn't take any spring honey. The hive is nice and heavy, but honey is winter bee food. It is survival bee food, whereas nectar is growing bee food. Nectar is what's going to grow 
the colony. Or, as I learned in this article, um, when there is no nectar in the, the late winter, the nectar is actually coming from the bee's bodies or the hypopharyngeal gland to be exact. Uh, that's They're having to actually expend their own bodies and then that's when, of course, they're, the adult bees are eating the honey and the pollen that's stored in order to feed that initial brood. My point, and let me wrap back around to it, is watch out in the late summer, which is about now here, watch out that your bees actually aren't underfed. And if you're in a dearth of whatever kind, consider a little trickle feeding. And that is like with a mason jar, for example. What you want, you don't want to dump a bunch of food on the colony. They'll just fill up their comb, then the queen has no room to lay, and that creates the same problem of, you know, a too small population. But rather, that little trickle, ongoing trickle of food, of nectar, of one-to-one sugar water, that is going to keep that queen believing there's still enough flow for her to to keep laying. Because otherwise, if, if she gets all the signals from the bees that the environment has shut down, that we are now in hungry times, then everything will cut back in the hive, including her laying. And so you can see how that would impact the population in a similar way that if the larvae and the brood that they're raising, if, if they're diseased from having been exposed to varroa mites, then they're not, again, you're losing population. And population of winter bees is what will get the hive through the winter. It's real counterintuitive because like right now, one of the things that becomes hard about working the bees is besides just it's hot and it's miserable and, and they're starting to get a little grumpier than they were in the summer. So it's counterintuitive because it's, see, there seems like to be so many bees, it's difficult to work the hives. But those are summer bees and they are not going to be the ones that are around come early next spring. So I wanted to share that with you because I believe the focus of that article, I mean, I learned a lot about specifics of the body chemistry and the and the mechanics of the cluster. That was pretty interesting of exactly how they stay warm. But the gist is that in the height of summer, in the height of summer heat, I should say, because obviously we're on the downhill slide from the summer solstice, that even when that population looks to be its biggest that's not the critical size that you're looking for. You're looking for the size of the winter cluster. All right, I hope that was helpful. I hope you learned something. If there are other topics that you would like me to research and find something to read to you, I will be glad to. I'll be back very shortly to tell you what's going on in my bee yard. Um, I am winning some things. I have some just stunningly beautiful queens that I raised this year. I'm, I'm in love with them all. <laughs> But the problem of being in love with them all is that I'm sliding down that slope again of, you know, at this point, I have too many colonies, way too many colonies to take care of with the limits of my time and strength. And so I've got to start early combining and just picking out the ones. I mean, my, my elder queens, I've got to just buck up and send them to glory and combine them with, um, the nukes that have the small younger queens in them so that we can go into winter with young queens. I want to, there's a couple of recent podcasts out that I believe were very interesting. Um, I think Beekeeping Today and Beekeeping um, um, Honeybee Obscura, which is Kim Flottam, who is also on Beekeeping Today. Both of those shows 
talked about the results of the latest Be Informed partnership on the loss rates from last winter. And there were a couple of uh, things in there that I'd wondered about and I just didn't quite understand. There was a great explainer in one of those podcasts that what they what they call a loss rate is the turnover rate. So in other words, if you went into winter with eight hives and you came out of winter with six hives, but then you did splits and now you have 12 hives. Well, from that initial winter number to your spring number, it looks like you grew. It doesn't count those that you lost in winter. So the person they were interviewing, the one of the researchers was talking about that it's a turnover rate of the colonies. And it's not to say you can't uh, start with two, lose one, split it, then you're back at two. But still there was a turnover rate of, of a loss of one. And that was an important detail because I had wondered about when I was entering my numbers, I, I would get confused at times about how, how to how to count that. But they say they have made the survey simpler and if you don't know about the Be Informed Partnership, then do a search for Be Informed Partnership. And um, they have the loss rates for backyard beekeepers, sideliner beekeepers, and commercial beekeepers. And the numbers from state to state can really vary because different states have different levels of participation. So some states, you know, might have a really good or a really horrific number. But then you look at the number of hives and you're like, well, that's not really representative. Still, overall, you can really get some um, some information there. But one of the details in the podcast that I, I think are both wor- li- worth listening to was the difference between commercial beekeepers and backyard beekeepers that backyard beekeepers, overwhelmingly, their losses are in the winter and they're severe. But commercial beekeepers have still have not so great survival rates are still losses but interestingly the losses were kind of spread in the summer and the winter and and I'll be interested to read and research more about the specifics but they did say one thing is that commercial beekeepers are pretty obsessed about going into winter with young queens and that's something I've become obsessed about because the survival rate it's pretty dramatic if you make sure that all your colonies have young queens and by that I mean one that was raised this summer or or even this spring as opposed to the queen that got you through the winter came out in summer I mean came out in spring again built that colony up and now she's probably getting tired I mean that's not literally the case. Well, who knows? Who knows if she is tired or not? I would be tired. I am tired. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is the a queen that has not run her big marathon race, which is to build up after winter in the spring to build up that honey gathering force. She has run her marathon and it is usually better for your survival rates if you can get a new queen in there in time to change over the population, you know, to change the force to her worker bees, and then as this whole article to get everybody healthy and enough everybody's to get through the winter. All right, so thank you so much for tuning in, all of your patience and your enthusiasm. The comments that some of you write just make my day and keep me going. And as always, none of this would be happening without the incredible support of the patrons. Thank you for keeping the lights on. All right, y'all have a great week. I'll talk to you very soon.